Coming up on Tech News Weekly, I, Micah Sargent, and my co-host today, Ant Pruitt, start by talking to The Washington Post's Garrett DeVink about Meta and other big tech companies going through massive layoffs. Then we talk to Stephen Shankland of CNET about his review of Mastodon and uh, what it's like to join that platform, how it compares to Twitter, how it's better or worse than Twitter, and what you need to know to make the most of it. Before we round things out with our stories of the week, first is Ant's story about verification on Twitter and how it's changing. It is a lot more confusing and is uh, sort of uh, troubling and (laughs) problematic. And then my story about Amazon looking to cut costs, particularly in its devices area. And yes, that does include A-L-E-X-A. Stay tuned for this episode of Tech News Weekly. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Tech News Weekly, episode 260, recorded Thursday, November 10th, 2022. This episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by Hover. Whether you're a developer, a photographer, or a small business, Hover has something for you to expand your projects and get the visibility you want. Go to hover.com slash twit to get 10% off your first purchase of any domain extension for the entire first year. And by Barracuda. Barracuda has identified 13 types of email threats and how cyber criminals use them every day. Phishing, conversation hacking, ransomware, plus 10 more tricks cyber criminals use to steal money from your company or personal information from your employees and customers. Get your free ebook at barracuda.com slash TNW. And by Wealthfront. Visit Wealthfront.com slash twit to get started and get your free $50 bonus with an initial deposit of $500. That's Wealthfront.com slash twit. Hello and welcome to Tech News Weekly, the show where every week we talk to and about the people making and breaking the tech news. It is a we week, but it is a different we week as Jason Howell is under the weather. So send all those good vibes to him. Uh, but joining us today, I am excited to say is Ant Pruitt. How you doing, Ant? Sir, I'm unbelievable as always. We we did you just go back to the Nintendo days? Because that's the first thing that popped oh my in my goodness. mind. Destroying we. televisions with the Wii Mote. <laughs> we would like to play. Oh my goodness, I had I hadn't thought about that, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's good to have you here. And uh, you know, it's it's whenever on occasion one of us has to be out. It's nice uh, that you are able to join us from time to time. And you actually have the honor of uh, kicking off the show this week. Yeah, I got some big shoes to fill. So let's go ahead and get started with this week's news. Unfortunately, it's uh, a bit of a downer of a story. Uh, Right now, the pandemic continues to just wreak havoc on all of us here around the world economically. And uh, big, big things continue to happen in the tech sector, whether it be Amazon, whether it be Google or, or, or even Salesforce, HP. All of these folks here in Silicon Valley are taking a hit regarding uh, layoffs and employment. And unfortunately, we've had one more to pop up this week, and that's the folks over at Meta and Facebook, as Mark Zuckerberg had to uh, let some people go. And today we're joined by Garrick DeVink, who covered this story here on uh, the Washington Post. 
Uh, so let's bring Mr. Garrick on to talk a little bit more about the details and some of the ins and outs of this story. Welcome, Mr. Garrick. Yeah, thanks. Glad to be here. Appreciate you joining us today. So, yeah, as, as I mentioned previously, uh, it's sad that this is something that seems to be pretty much common right now. Um, we don't know how long this is going to go on, but a lot of us here in the industry have seen this this coming, a bit of foreshadowing because, you know, the, the, the economy is pretty craptastic right now. Uh, what happened with the folks at Meta and Facebook? Yeah, so um, Facebook laid off around 11,000 workers this week. Um, that's about 13% of their workforce. It's a lot of people. Um, you know, it's a small town's worth of people. Um, but, you know, it's also important to remember that Facebook, you know, they hired about 15,000 people a year, every year for the last, since the beginning of the pandemic. So the pandemic started and, you know, we all thought those first few weeks, wow, is this finally the big economic crash that we've kind of been putting off or waiting for since the financial crisis way back in 2007, 2008. The stock market has just been booming and tech companies in particular have really benefited from that, just getting bigger and bigger and bigger, hiring tens of thousands of new employees. But then what happened is the government stepped in, you know, in 2020, put a bunch of stimulus into the, the market, lowered interest rates so that if you wanted to get new investment capital, it was really easy to do so. And a lot of people were spending time at home, spending more time online, buying all their stuff online instead of going to real stores. And so the tech companies, including Facebook, just doubled down with investment. They poured all sorts of new money into building out their products, into hiring people, hiring new salespeople, trying to kind of get out there and take advantage of this you know, big boom in um, you know, tech spending, internet spending. And now that for many people, the pandemic is sort of over, at least in the minds of a lot of people, they are going back to work. They are going back to real stores. Um, a lot of tech companies are struggling. The revenue growth that they've seen the last couple of years have sort of fallen off a cliff. And Facebook called out that change. They said, look, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we thought that this was going to be sort of a once in a generation change in the way people uh, behave, that they're going to spend a lot more money through tech companies rather than through real life brick and mortar stores. And so we invested to take advantage of that. And now we're looking at the data and seeing that, you know, it hasn't really changed. We're kind of back to where we started. And that's why we need to lay off all these people. And so there's a bit of a few asterisks with that explanation, but mm -hmm. that's the main one that Facebook is giving right now. Well, invested in the workforce to take advantage of folks that were allegedly trying to deal more with an online presence. That that seems like a good idea. But is that the only investment that Facebook made? Because I got a hunch that Facebook is putting its chips in this this whole virtual space. Was that another part of the problem? Why are they losing money left and right? Yeah, I mean, you know, Facebook has invested a lot of money, you know, in the billions of dollars in the metaverse, you know, and so. From their perspective, you know, they believe that the next frontier of technology is not going to be on computers or on TVs or on our mobile phones, but it's going to be in the metaverse, sort of these virtual worlds that we might interact with through, you know, big VR glasses or augmented reality glasses where we're sort of, you know, moving through the world, but also seeing tech or, you know, instead of going into a physical office, you might put on a pair of of uh, virtual reality gl glasses and tap into an office meeting through that. And so they're definitely the biggest company that has really invested in this future. A lot of people think that they are making a huge mistake, that the metaverse is not really 
you know, going to happen in the way that that they want it to, that, um, you know, the technology isn't quite there yet, that people aren't that interested in it. Um, but the company has said, look, we're making a big bet on this. And, and you know, Mark Zuckerberg, CEO, has even reassigned a lot of his employees who are working on other things to work on metaverse projects. And so the stock market is really skeptical of this metaverse plan. And they have actually a lot of, you know, big investors have pulled their money out of Facebook stock because they just disagree with Zuckerberg that that is what the future is going to be, or at least that it's going to happen as quickly as Facebook is planning for it to happen. And so Facebook stock is sort of, you know, worth a lot less, you know, even compared to other tech companies, you mentioned other tech companies who are also struggling, you know, yeah, Google, Amazon, Apple, they've all seen their stock go down this year, but Facebook has been really hard, you know, particularly hard hit to the point where, you know, although Google, Microsoft, Apple are still among the, you know, top four or five or six most valuable companies in the world, Facebook has totally dropped down that list. They're now worth less than companies like Coca-Cola or Home Depot or Pfizer, you know, still giant corporations, but, you know, companies that were never at the level of, you know, big tech and Facebook has sort of dropped down. So I do think that as their stock price falls, it becomes harder for Facebook to attract new employees because a lot of the, the benefits of working at a company like that is that you get paid in stock. And so you're mm-hmm. like, oh, I can make a lot of money by working at a company whose stock is worth a lot of money. But as Facebook stock keeps falling, that becomes more difficult for them. And so, you know, they need to cut costs and, and or at least they need to cut costs to sort of signal to Wall Street, to investors, hey, we are going to focus on making this company more profitable. We know you don't like our metaverse plan, but how about we cut costs and make ourselves more profitable? Does that maybe make you interested in investing in our stock again? So I think there's a few things going on here. Well, I'm co-host on another show here on the network called This Week in Google, and we have a lot of fun. I probably shouldn't say fun, but we, we, <laughs> we bring up a, a lot of discussions about Google killing things off. They have they have all of these different products that they just sort of brainstorm and throw out into to the wild and see if it sticks. And most of the time um, they don't because there's really no support there from a uh, leadership standpoint. So these products get killed off. Well, with Facebook laying 11,000 people off, uh, does that mean that they're going to take some of the limited resources now to just sort of push towards this, this metaverse, as you said, or, or is there anything else that Facebook could work on to sort of, you know, entice people to come and make more investments in them and, and saying, Hey, we're more lean and, and, and clean right now. We've trimmed the fat, if you will. So we're a worthy company right now. Just, just stick it out with this because this metaverse is going to work. And also how long is that wait? You know, how long is it for, for, for Facebook to sit back and say, you know what, just, just, just ride it out, ride it out. The metaverse is going to be great. Is it five years? Is it 10 years? What are your thoughts? I mean, those are all really good questions that I don't think anyone has an answer to. And if they do, they are probably using it to invest and they're going to be a lot richer than you and I in in a few years. So, so, you know, I do think it's interesting to sort of compare these two things where Facebook is saying, Oh, we, 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 you know, we overinvested in e-commerce and digital advertising during the pandemic, and it didn't play out the way we thought it would. That's why we need to cut costs. But at the same time, you know, they're putting money into the metaverse, which is the thing that people are actually skeptical about, right? So I do think there is sort of, you know, it's a, it's a pretty nuanced picture. And you could say, oh, well, you know, 
if you really wanted to cut costs and to sort of, you know, go back to, to basics, you would cut costs on the metaverse side. But if there's no real indication that that's what they're doing. I mean, the company seems quite committed to this plan. Um, you know, I think, you know, losing 11,000 people, I mean, those people were all doing real things. And, you, you know, I definitely think a lot of people look at Silicon Valley companies and they feel like they are too big, that there is too much fat at those companies, that there might be a lot of people who it's unclear what exactly they do. And there's probably some truth to that. But of course, you know, those people themselves weren't seeing it that way. And, and I do think that, um, you know, it raises questions about, you know, how much Facebook can sort of respond and, and continue to improve its its core products like Facebook, uh, Instagram, WhatsApp, um, especially since they are focusing on the metaverse, you know, does this mean that those products that people are already starting to say, hey, I'm going to leave Instagram because I'm going to spend more time on TikTok or I find TikTok to be more entertaining. Um, you know, a lot of people, especially in the younger generations already don't spend any time on the, the core of Facebook app itself. And so mm -hmm. I think, you know, you can start to say, oh, well, people, you know, is this company sort of admitting defeat in those, you know, apps that it built its entire business on, and of course, are still immensely profitable and generating huge amounts of, of money for the company, despite these tough times. But is the company sort of saying, you know, maybe we are just going to not be investing or iterating as much in those products and just kind of let them ride it out? Um, I mean, I don't think we have proof of that necessarily. We don't know exactly among these 11,000 people, you know, what their particular jobs were. I mean, there is some talk about a lot of them being HR people or salespeople. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think for, you know, tech engineers, particularly, they see those jobs as, you know, not necessary. But of course, those are the people who bring the money in. They also are the people who keep the company running. I mean, keep if, the lights if on. Lights <laughs> on, exactly. And so, you know, especially when it comes to things like, you know, even customer service is essentially non-existent at Facebook. If you try, to, if you lose your account and you need to contact someone at Facebook to get it back, you know, good luck. I think problems like that will only get worse because the company is not going to be, you know, they won't be investing in those sort of things on the side um, now that they have fewer employees. And before I let you go, I, I want to comment about, okay, we just recently had the midterms elections here. And for the last handful of years, whenever there's any election, whether it's the, the presidential or midterms, Facebook was, was always top of mind. Everybody was talking about something they saw on Facebook. Every news outlet said something they, they saw posted to Facebook. I, I can't say that I heard a lot of that during this recent midterm. Is that yet another signal of, ooh, Facebook and Meta is pretty much in trouble right now? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a good question. I, I still think that there's a ton of activity happening on Facebook. I mean, there's way more people on Facebook than there are on Twitter, even though Twitter is the one that we have been talking a lot about the last week or so because of Elon Musk taking over the company and beginning to change things. So exactly. I definitely think, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we can have a whole another show if we want to talk about him. But, um, you know, I, I, I think we, you know, we can't get a take our eye off the ball when it comes to Facebook. I mean, the company is still very, you know, central to the way that people understand the world to where they get their news. Um, a lot of older Americans, you know, people who, who vote at higher rates than younger people, they get their news from Facebook. Uh, they get good news. They get misinformation from Facebook. Um, they form their opinions through interacting with other people on there. So I don't think that Facebook necessarily decides what the election results are, or, you know, make totally changes society, but it definitely plays a really important role. And I think even if 
the company invests less or maybe people start using those platforms less, it's not going to go away overnight. I mean, these are platforms that have millions and millions of people on, you know, way more people um, are on Facebook than on any other, um, you know, major social app. And, um, you know, definitely more than the, the numbers of people who will, you know, read a newspaper or even watch um, TV sometimes. And so I think we have to sort of, you know, keep holding Facebook accountable for that misinformation, um, especially when it comes to elections and, and hate speech and racism. I don't think these issues just go away because the company is in a difficult place financially. I mean, I think there's actually concern that they may be investing even less in content moderation and increasing those policies, um, you know, in the same way that there's been a lot of criticism about Elon Musk's cuts at Twitter and concerns that cutting staff will make it harder for the company to deal with misinformation and to deal with hate speech on its platform. I think we need to keep continuing to ask those questions to Facebook as well. Nice. Well, Mr. Garrett, I really do appreciate you joining us today here on Tech News Weekly. Where can we find more of the things that you're working on and, and, and some of your, your stories? Yeah, I mean, they're all at WashingtonPost.com. And my Twitter is um, just my first name and D, so at G-E-R-R-I-T-D. If you want to follow me there, that'd be great. But yeah, happy to be here. Outstanding. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. Anytime. All right. Thank you very much, Garrett. Uh, up next, one tech journalist's look at the platform that some are saying could replace Twitter, although who knows. Uh, but until then, let us take a quick break so I can tell you about Hover, who are bringing you this episode of Tech News Weekly. It is time for you to make plans and let Hover help you achieve them. If you're a blogger, if you're creating a portfolio, if you're building an online store, or maybe you just want to have a more memorable redirect to your website, then that is where Hover can come in to make it possible because Hover has the best domain names and email addresses just for you. Email at your domain name is key. I, I this is so true. You you uh, meet someone via you know their business or whatever, and you ask them for their business card or their business information and their um, monkey keychains at yahoo.com. And you're going, I suddenly don't know if I want to participate in this, but they've got their own custom uh, domain. It's, I don't know, keychains at monkeys.com. <laughs> then it's, you suddenly go, oh, you know, you've taken the time You've gotten a website, you've put this together, you've made it happen. It helps you to connect with your customers. It helps you build trust for your brand. And Hover is going to help you with all of that because they have domain-based emails for all your needs, small or large. Super easy to set up. You can add as many mailboxes to your domain as you need. And when your domain renews, well, that's when your mailboxes will too. And the prices are fantastic. Their most popular mailbox is a no-brainer solution for business owners. Love this too. You can get access from anywhere. You can use the email app you already use. That's how I've got one of uh, my domains is through Hover email. And I can set it up with the, uh, I use two, three different mail applications. All of them are set up with it just fine. And of course, if apps aren't your thing, well, there's also webmail uh, that you can access from anywhere you happen to be. I just love how simple Hover is. 
how simple it is to get a new domain. Both love and hate because it means that I get domains all the time when I don't really need them. Uh, I could go to Hover. I can type in a name. I can find it or get a good suggestion for something that's similar to it if the one that I want is taken. And then I can Apple Pay, uh, which just means laying my index finger down on my keyboard and suddenly another domain is mine. It's it's I've fantastic. Do that, folks. <laughs> it happens all the time. Uh, and I love too that Hover, it's not about upselling you on stuff that you don't need. They just want to be there to help you uh, with the stuff that you do need. So you get pro-level tools. That means that you'll get a powerful domain and email management tools that are intuitive, super easy to use. Whether you're a web pro, you're just getting started. Uh, just the other day, I needed to go in and make some... Um, it, instead of just doing domain uh, record changes, I needed to actually change name servers for my domain. And it was simple to do with Hover. And I love that. I mean, sometimes I get in there and I mess around with things and I mess something up. Hover has a really easy way to reset things back to how they should be. So uh, when I was you know, going through and trying to forward this to here and set this up with that and I did it wrong, then my domain still is there. It's still available. I can still make it work. I just hit that reset button and suddenly things are back to how they should be. It's private and secure as well. Who is privacy protection is included with your domain uh, purchase so that your information will remain private as it should be. It's a great way to reduce spam and protect your from unwanted solicitations because companies will find that who is information and they will send you ridiculous things. I remember setting up a domain before I knew about Hover long ago and I got these pens in the mail uh, and like notebooks and all this other stuff in the mail with my name all over it. And I thought, who knows me? Why is this happening? And it was because of uh, them using who is for that. And then anyone could look it up. Terrifying. Uh, but that is where Hover comes in to help you keep all that stuff locked tight and secret. Hover Connect is also great for folks who may not have uh, the necessary knowledge to be able to set up all of those special settings so that your domain goes to the right website. With Hover Connect, you can pick the service you want to use to build and host your website. And then Connect helps you get things locked and loaded. So in many cases, it's a few clicks and you're good to go. And in the cases where it's not, then Hover Connect will help you figure out what you should be typing in where, how you should be typing it in and going from there. At Hover, you are a customer, not a source of data. They are there to help you find domains and emails. And that's what they want to do. They're not there to try and make money off of you uh, through taking your data and, and selling it to third parties. So you can take back control of your data with reliable, tracker-free email. Hover is trusted by hundreds of thousands of customers who use their domain names and email to turn their ideas into a reality. So whether you're a developer, a photographer, a small business, an individual who wants to have your own email address, Hover has something for you to expand your projects, get that visibility you want. Go to hover.com slash twit to get 10% off your first purchase of any domain extension for the entire first year. That's hover.com slash twit for 10% off your domain extension for a full year. And of course, thank you, Hover, for your support. Honestly, anytime someone's like, oh yeah, I uh, set up a new domain, and then they tell me and it's not Hover, I'm going... Come on, what's what's up with that? Hover, it's fantastic. Give it a go. I think you're going to love it. All right, back from the break. And now, through the help of movie magic, we're going to time travel to earlier in the day when I interviewed Stephen Shankland of CNET uh, about 
uh, Stephen's thoughts on Mastodon. Play the dreamlike music. All right, folks. So you may um, have heard about some of the issues uh, facing Twitter. And along with sort of the meltdown that seems to be taking place uh, at the social media company uh, comes an exodus and a migration that is also taking place over to a platform called Mastodon. Joining us today to talk about Mastodon from CNET, it is Stephen Shankland. Welcome to the show, Stephen. All right. Good morning. Good morning to you. So, before we can talk about your thoughts on Mastodon, I think you had a great piece kind of covering what's good, what's not, what, what's, what you struggled with. I think it's important that we start with Mastodon itself. For our listeners who might not know, what is Mastodon? All right. So it is a social network. So we're all familiar with social networks. Let's start there. That's pretty familiar. It's similar to Twitter in that you can you know, post little messages, microblogging, and you can follow people. So that much is pretty familiar to people who use Twitter. What's different is that instead of having one central service operated by Twitter, you have a whole bunch of different people, thousands of them operating their own little pieces of Mastodon. These separate pieces are called servers and they all interconnect so you can follow and see what else is going on on other servers, but you sort of have your own home zone, which is your own server. So this is called a federated design and architecturally it's very different. It's got some, uh, some advantages and some disadvantages and mostly it's just different if you're one of those uh, people exiting Twitter looking for an alternative. Okay, yes, that it, it does get a little confusing. And I think uh, it's understandable why folks have gone, okay, I thought I was supposed to go to Mastodon, but I have no idea how it works. And federation, I think, is at the heart of the confusion uh, for folks uh, who are trying to join the platform. And I'm curious, from your own perspective, do you think it was a mistake to design Mastodon in such a way? Uh, and then on the flip side, what is the benefit of federation over what Twitter has, where you join a platform where everybody else is kind of in that same place. I'm not going to say whether it was a mistake or not. You have to look at it in context. So when it was founded, it was sort of an antidote to Twitter in some ways. So it was designed deliberately to be different from Twitter to try to fix some issues that Twitter had. For example, there is no advertising. There is no central corporate power. It showed up at a time when maybe Peter Thiel was going to take over Twitter. Some people were worried about that. Well, it turned out to be Elon Musk. Same same issue, different person. But some of the issues of corporate control, uh, Mastodon is kind of immune from. So you have to look at it in that context. Now, that said, is it a mistake to take this approach? That depends on how much pain you're willing to put up with to actually use Mastodon. So uh, I think that uh, if you want to succeed as Mastodon, you might, it might, it might done, it'd be fine. To succeed as a Twitter replacement, that's going to be a lot bigger a challenge. Absolutely. Now, you write about the, the different servers, these instances on Mastodon. I'm curious uh, what server, what, what instance you ended up joining, and... I was curious, too, for folks who are thinking about joining it, they do have that confusion whenever you, you kind of get this list of different servers that you can join. They think, oh, I'm siloed off in that bubble. Um, how do you 
If you are kind of looking for a community, you mentioned in your piece kind of some of the rules that might exist in different places. Can you tell us about what that experience is like? How do I know? Am I not supposed to say the word bubblegum in this uh, specific instance because it's all people who have braces or something like that? How do I know the rules? Okay, so the hardest thing about Mastodon, in my opinion, is starting to use it. And it's because of this issue of servers. You have to pick a server to get started. And that can be very intimidating. I say it's like moving to a different city and renting an apartment before you know where your friends live, before you know where the good neighborhoods and the bad neighborhoods are. Now, picking a server is not a permanent lifetime commitment. You can pick multiple servers. You can move from one server to another. But all of that is a hassle. You know, if you start on one server, you get some followers, you get some people following you, and then you want to pick up and move, well, you lo- you lose all that part of your social graph. So. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's sort of a high commitment choice that you have to make early on. There are two general types of servers. One is these broad servers for everybody. That's kind of the one that's more for me. That's a bit more Twitter-like. But then there are specific ones for specific people. MIT has a server. People who like open source software have a server. People who live in Australia, people who are journalists. There are lots of different slices. And one of the nice things about Mastodon is if you can find a server that works for you, you kind of get a built-in community. So you don't have to find lots and lots of people to follow. You know, you're not starting kind of all by yourself alone in the big city. You're starting in kind of a neighborhood. So that's a nice thing about these servers. Like I say, the problem is finding the right server, figuring out which one is for you, and then committing to it. So, you know, it's kind of a baffling thing. You have to do searching. You have to, you know, when you go to uh, sign up, you're presented with a list of servers. That list changes every time you refresh that. (laughs) There are literally thousands of them. So it's a pretty intimidating process. My advice for people is to start on a general purpose server. Maybe don't worry too much about figuring out, you know, hundreds of people to follow and trying to get people to follow you, but find a spot where you can get an anchor. You can get started and then maybe branch out from there, find a server that, that works for you better. One of the nice things about the servers is, you know, you can, you can find one that, that sort of fits you in a way that can be lots of different policies against hate speech or found one that says, you know, you're not allowed to uh, deny the Holocaust. There are lots of these rules and these rules are presented to you when you're signing up. So sometimes uh, it's kind of like reading terms and conditions. It's not really that much fun, but if you're into it, it, it kind of can be fun. But like I say, the server choice is the the hardest part about Mastodon. Once you get over that hurdle, then it gets a lot easier. Good to know. Yeah, I was especially curious kind of about the how how you know what rules you're supposed to follow. It's good that it's kind of presented there at the beginning. Now, another issue that you talk about in your piece, uh, which everyone should go read over on CNET, um, are the problems that you experienced with following and favoriting and I have to agree with you that has that ended up being because I, I could get signed up, but then I was trying to follow people and I had trouble with that. Can you talk about what uh, you experienced there? Yes. Yeah, so this is the second big problem. I, I put it. The first big problem is the server choice. The second big problem is actually using the system. And to me, there's a lot of friction. So because of this uh, server design, if you want to interact with somebody who's in a different server, often you can't just click a favorite button or can't click the boost button, which is what Mastodon calls retweet. You can't just click the follow button if you want to. When you do that, you get a dialog box that pops up that says, you're not on this server. Here's a, an address you can copy over to your server and then you can put it in and then you can follow or favorite or boost. So it's you know sort of a three, four step process with some tedious manual labor. And for people who are just used to a traditional social network where you set up a username, set up a password, 
and then off you off you go to the races. You know, this is a lot of extra work and it doesn't go away. It doesn't happen with all servers. So some server connections are faster. Once you've set up the connection, things seem to work more smoothly, you know, to a specific person. But it's, yeah, there's a lot of friction there. And, it, you know, kind of, for me, it, it erodes sort of the fun and, and, and um, yeah. easy to use nature of social networking where you kind of scroll along. Yeah, I like that one. Oh, I like that one. Oh, retweet that one. It's not, it's not quite that easy. Yeah. Uh, it, it can be a little complicated. I know that that, uh, that plays into it. Now, this is uh, sort of an aside question. I think one of sort of the longest ongoing uh, cultural memes uh, on Twitter is this sort of uh, bouginess, this, this bourgeois nature of having a blue check versus not. And I do think there's something to be said for that sort of reaching to grab that playing a role in in you know folks activity on twitter and also uh perhaps the people who do have it using the tools that they were provided as part of that uh and also just a, a level of 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 alleged fame or however you want to put it that comes with that so in talking about that i was kind of trying to think of something similar that exists on Mastodon. And I am curious how you feel about uh, some of the servers, particularly the original servers that were created or the original instances that were created, uh, closing off, adding new folks, and uh, some of them that do require you to apply to join those servers. Is that kind of the blue check of Mastodon or should we not even be thinking of it in that, in that way? I think that that is, it's a little, it's a little bit of a harsh interpretation. So I think there might be some sort of in crowd issues uh, there where, you know, I'm on this server, that means I have some kind of status as being a member of this particular community. I don't think that's too bad, mostly because I think the reason that the servers are screening people and some of them, not all of them, many of them are open to anybody, but some of them require you to, to apply. And I, I think that that level of uh, approval is not so that there can be some elite class on some elite server. It's just because they want to make sure you're part of this, uh, you know, this community because mm -hmm. there is a community aspect to some of these servers. So I, I don't think that that in and of itself is an issue. I do think that, uh, you know, the more people join Mastodon, the more we're going to see celebrities or, you know, big people who are you know famous or notable or interesting. And that's going to be, the same dynamic we've seen on Facebook and Twitter and everywhere else, which is where you get somebody who's a big deal. Everybody wants to know what they have to say. They'll get a whole lot of followers and they'll be uh, you know, sort of more influential, more important on the platform. And there's not the algorithmic that one of the differences between Mastodon and Twitter is uh, Mastodon's algorithm is whatever was most recently said. So they don't uh, show you things based on uh, you know traffic and engagement and things like that. So some of those dynamics are very different from on, from on Twitter. Mm -hmm. But I do still think you know there's always a situation where humans are kind of drawn to what celebrities have to say. Celebrities defined very broadly: business, right, people, right. politicians, royalty, movie stars, you know, our personal hero in some technology company, whatever. Uh, you know, I think that dynamic is is still kind of an inevitable part of human nature and really hard to remove from social networking. Absolutely. So let's round things out. Now that we've looked at some of, or you've looked at some of the problems uh, that you experienced with Mastodon, what is it that you do like about the platform in comparison to Twitter? 
Well, there are some interesting deliberate choices they make. And I think the biggest one is they try to make it easier to moderate your own experience. So they have more controls for blocking people or muting things that you don't want to encounter. There's much more of a culture around using content warnings as kind of a voluntary thing. Content warning is very broadly defined. It's not just, you know, gory pictures or something like that. It can be right. even that something is, you know, unpleasant as a news headline. Some people might not want to see that. So the content warning protocol is kind of, I think it's pretty squishy, but, you know, there's sort of an, an acknowledgement that not everybody wants to be exposed to whatever, uh, uh, you, you know, you might want to, you might want to share with people. So there's a bit more ability to control things there in terms of who follows you. You can also use it more judiciously in terms of whether you're broadcasting to everybody in the world or to a specific group or even just a specific few people. So you can kind of control your, um, it's not like everything on, everything on Twitter is a, you know, mic is a megaphone. Everything is different. Yes. Right. So, so Mastodon is a bit more nuanced there. And I think that's, that's kind of interesting if you want to use it to uh, sort of narrow the scope of who you're communicating with. And also this server aspect has a certain, um, you know, hominess or collegiality potentially. Uh, we'll see if that persists. That could, you know, that could change as, as conventions change with Mastodon. But I do think that the effort to let people control their experience a bit better, that's laudable. Absolutely. Well, Stephen, I want to thank you so much for taking some time to join us today to talk about Mastodon. I know people are very curious about it as they continue to hear, at least those of us in the tech world, talking about it. Uh, so it's good to get a little bit more of a behind-the-scenes look and understand how it works. Uh, of course, folks can head over to CNET.com to check out your great work. But if they want to follow you online, is there a place they can go to do that? Yeah, yeah. So you can follow me on Twitter, <laughs> Twitter.com, <laughs> ST Shank. And right there, there's a litter to my, a link to my long and cumbersome Mastodon username as well. Beautiful. Thank you for your time today. All right. Thank you. Welcome back. Uh, and thank you again to Stephen Shanklin for his time this morning uh, talking about Mastodon and uh, his thoughts on the platform. I think they were uh, really accurate in terms of, of, my own uh, struggles on that platform and thinking of other people trying to use it, what they go through in uh, trying to get it all figured out. So hopefully that brought some clarity if you had some. Uh, and I think we're ready uh, for the next the next bit. Hey, Mrs. Sergeant, I got to tell you, I, I, I laughed out loud when he said, follow me on Twitter. <laughs> right. Wasn't that great? <laughs> <sighs> Wow. We'll wow, keep saying wow. it, I'm sure. <laughs> well, my story of the week is is sort of gonna touch on a little bit of the things that he talked about there. And, and that was that was good stuff for Mr. Steven. It was a great explanation. But before we get into my story of the week, I want to take a few minutes to thank this week's sponsor of Tech News Weekly, Barracuda. In a recent email trend survey, forty-three percent of respondents said that they've been victims of spear phishing attacks. That's pretty scary. Well, but only 23% of them said that they have dedicated spear phishing attack protection. That's even more scary. Goodness. <laughs> now, how are you keeping your email secure? Barracuda has identified 13 types of email threats and how cyber criminals use them every day. There's phishing, there's conversation hacking, there's ransomware, plus 10 more tricks cyber criminals are using to steal money from your company or your personal information from your employees and customers. Are you protected against all 13 types? Good question. 
Email cybercrime is becoming more sophisticated and attacks are more difficult to prevent these days. Attacks use social engineering, including urgency and fear to prey on its victims. That's that's a true story. You know, you could put something fearful in an email and pretty much get people to do whatever you ask them to do because of scare tactic. Social engineering attacks uh, include spear phishing and business email compromise cost businesses an average of one hundred and thirty thousand dollars per incident. That's per incident, not just per year, per incident. As demand for COVID-19 tests increased at the start of 2022, Barracuda researchers saw an increase in COVID-19 test-related phishing attacks increased by 521% between October and January. Now, as public interests rise for whether it be something like Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, of course, you're going to see more opportunistic attacks from the bad actors out there. So when Bitcoin went up almost 400% between October 2020 and April 2021, Barracuda Research also found that impersonation attacks grew 192% in the same period. In 2020, the Internet Crime Complaint Center received over 19,000 business email compromise as well as email account compromise complaints with adjusted losses of over $1.8 billion. That's Billion with a B. Secure an email at the gateway level is not enough anymore. It's still important to leverage gateway security to protect against traditional attacks such as viruses and zero-day ransomware and spam and other threats. But look, your gateway is defenseless against targeted attacks. Protection at the inbox level, including AI and machine learning, is necessary to detect and stop the most sophisticated threats. Get a free copy of the Barracuda Report. 13 email threat types to know about right now. And you'll see how cyber criminals are getting more and more sophisticated every day and how you can build the best protection for your business data and people with Barracuda. Find out about the 13 email threat types you need to know about right now and how Barracuda can provide complete email protection for your teams, your customers, and your reputation. Get your free ebook at barracuda.com slash TNW. That's barracuda.com slash TNW. Barracuda, your journey secured. And we thank Barracuda for supporting Tech News Weekly. Okay, so my story of the week, I wanted to touch on a little bit of what Mr. Stephen just spoke about in the previous segment. And that's the, the whole aspect of being verified. So here recently in the news, uh, NBC News reported that there's been a, a, a rash of verified quotes, <laughs> verified <laughs> accounts on Twitter, uh, stating a whole lot of outlandish things, even accounts such as, you know, LeBron James of the Los Angeles Lakers requesting an, a, a trade to move away from the Lakers. Oh, and to find out that was not LeBron James, even though it was verified. Hmm. <sighs> That's pretty scary, right? There's a lot of ramifications around this type of stuff. So let me let me talk to you folks about verification. I'm going to give you my two cents on it and give you what the facts of the matter are. When you sign up to be verified on the Twitter platform, you're basically saying, hey, I am who I am. I am providing additional information to prove that I am who I am. Therefore, I cannot be impersonated by someone else unless they have that same verification process in place, which, of course, they're not going to be able to do that. So 
when you look up Aunt Pruitt on Twitter, Aunt underscore Pruitt, wink, wink, you'll see there's a blue verification check there that says I am who I am. And other folks out there with that same handle are not going to have that check. Um, the verification process, it, I think that's totally fine and does a good job. But now with, with Musk coming in as the new leader of Twitter and these new uh, blue check verification, quote unquote, procedures in place, this has opened up the floodgate, basically saying, you know what? You pay your eight dollars a month, you get the blue check and you are, quote, verified. <laughs> uh, a little bit of egg on the face of team Twitter right now. I, I'm hoping they're going to step in and fix this this procedure. But I, I just think it needs to be reiterated that right now, Twitter verification is showing pretty much as like a, a, a sales receipt that says, OK, I paid eight dollars a month. That's all it's doing. Uh, it's not necessarily preventing impersonation attacks like this here. Now, Mr. Sergeant, I know that you have the blue check on your profile for Twitter, and mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure you followed the steps because of impersonation and tax and things like that. Right. So I um, I I was verified in the uh, before times when uh, app, not Apple, but Twitter at the time was working on upping its uh, journalistic game. So there was a time when Twitter was kind of going, okay, we are a platform that clearly is good for breaking news and for making sure that people can have information as soon as it's available. And so we need to reach out to our journalistic partners and make sure that if people are looking for that news, they can find verifiable sources for that news. And oh, fascinating. So, yeah. So someone from Twitter um, reached out to the company that I worked for at the time where I was a news anchor, the company's called Newsy. And they said, uh, we would like to verify your journalists that appear on camera. Uh, so give us a list of them. And so I and several other people who were on camera anchors um, gave over first our you know our names uh but then later on had to do the whole process where you uh i believe i believe at the time like we uh had to scan our um driver's licenses or something like mm -hmm. that um mm -hmm. and then I, I think a month later at the time and this would have been around maybe 2012 2013 um mm -hmm. A month later, or so then I had the blue check mark on my, uh, you know, next to my name, and so at that time uh, there was no official process for asking to be verified, uh, mm -hmm. and for a long time that was the case. And then Twitter introduced an option where people who felt like they were notable or whatever it happened to be, or because they were being impersonated or whatever that happened to be, then they you could go and apply for it. And then Twitter mm -hmm. shut that down, that process down for a while, yep. and then they brought I it back they again. It down. Yeah. And so that part got kind of confusing because, I mean, at the time, I there was thought that like you had to be notable to be verified. And that wasn't what Twitter wanted the verification process to be. It wasn't a uh, a crown to place atop the heads of certain people. It was genuinely a, hey, this person is from a, in, that, in this case, a news organization and is very much this person and, you know, what they're saying is tied to that news organization. Um, 
and then it it kind of branched out from there because then it came it became uh, something where if you had a certain number of followers then that played a role but the you know the process wasn't exactly clear the reasoning behind it wasn't exactly clear i mean at the time that i was verified i probably only had like 500 or 600 followers so it really was not um about how big you were on the platform. It was about making sure that the journalists there uh, were. And of course, then, you know, Twitter, I'm sure, had a media team who reached out to different uh, celebrity uh, people and and talked to, you know, their teams and got them verified for different reasons. So there were all of these different kind of groups and um, reasons behind why verification was taking place. But in the end, it did mean that you could at least have some bit of, okay, that that when you're reading a thing, it is coming from the person who it says it's coming from or the organization, the news organization that it says it's coming from. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, now has changed. And that's kind of what you're talking about. You know, I find it fascinating because I didn't quite know the whole journalistic angle. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I tried to get verified several years ago because I was getting impersonated. You know, granted, I wasn't a a huge celebrity or anything like that. But at the same time, I didn't like the fact that stuff was was going out with my name on it. That was totally not me, totally screwing up my own personal brand. And of course, when I would reach out to Twitter to to go through the whole verification process, it was like, "Uh, no, you're a nobody, essentially is what they said. Um, So we're not going to verify you. And then the verification process went away. Um, Later on, after I came here to Twit, you know, we went through the verification process again and I got it because uh, pretty sure it's because of my affiliation and being employed by Twit TV media. And it makes Mm -hmm. perfect sense. But then there's also the aspect of, you know, when I'm going through my Twitter feed, you get the notifications panel, there's the mentions, there's the activity, and then there's that column that says verified. Yeah. Um, You know, I really enjoy that. It's it's nice to see um, verified people, especially colleagues in the industry, um, that I'm being able that I'm able to interact with and not having to think twice about it being some faker poser account because at one point in time in my life I had been confused by other accounts that looked like someone else that I knew and they were being uh impersonated. And that's something that I wanted to touch on with this story here because again, if you look at the the story uh, um the the post of quote LeBron James and his, you know, requesting a trade it looks legit. Everything looks legit. You have to really dig into the details of it to see, oh, no, this is not him. Uh, it sort of reminds me of phishing emails that we get. Uh, someone from, let's, I don't know, say Dick Sporting Goods or something like that says, hey, you know, we got a certificate for you. And you check out the email address. It comes from 8910201 at co. <laughs> And the, the average person would not see that. They just saw the, the big, bold headline in the subject and, and so on and so forth and says, you know what, let me go ahead and click on this and just dump all of my information in there. This, this totally reminds me of phishing, what's going on with Twitter's new, quote, verification. Now, I want to touch on one other thing here because Mastodon is, is all of the rage nowadays. And I wanted to show my screen here if uh, Mr. 
Mr. John Ashley will allow me to do so. So let's see, we hit this button here. Right now we're looking at my Mastodon feed. And I personally have chosen to make my Mastodon private at the moment because I'm still trying to curate it. I don't necessarily want this space to be quite chaotic as Twitter and Instagram can be for me at times. So I've locked it down and made it private. And when people want to follow me, they have to request to follow me. So over here, there's this follow request. And I've been finding this to be pretty problematic as as well, because how can I really verify someone? And there's a couple of things I can look at. You know, this here, this very top request is just the Mastodon logo. Now on Twitter, when you see that, that standard, what is it? The blue egg thing or what have you? Yeah. Most people totally ignore that, right? Because they're thinking, nope, that's probably a bot. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So, but that may not be the case over here um, because sometimes I've found that I click on it and there are people that have joined the twit.social Mastodon Mm -hmm. instance and they tend to be safe. But at the same time, my brain is thinking about Twitter and those. Yeah, the way that Twitter does it. Yeah. Mm hmm. Right. You know, and I could see here, this someone, this is someone, they're, they're brand new to the platform. They are posting, they are interacting with Leo and not necessarily being a troll or anything like that. These are just new faces that haven't quite set up their instance, uh, set up their profile on Macedon, because as you just said in the previous segment, it could be quite <laughs> challenging for some people. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing my own little verification here and thinking, all right, do I let this person follow me? Yes or no. And I'll go ahead and allow this one to follow me now. But I just wanted to bring that up because everyone is in, in the geek space is saying, you know, decentralized options such as what's going on with Mastodon and ActivityPub is the answer to Twitter. It's the answer to doing proper verification uh, because you can put in these, these rail tags, real.me tags in your profile that says you are who you are, so on and so forth. But I don't know. I don't know if that's the answer. I know that it is an option, uh, but I just think it's something that needs to be discussed, especially on the Twitter side of things, because I think they have the word um, verified defined wrong in their procedures. Absolutely. Now, especially um, there's it's completely lost its meaning where that that's like they should not call this new thing that they have verified because that nothing there is verifying anything there's because i actually i was confused about this when this whole new thing was first announced what i thought was happening is if you paid the eight dollars a month then you could go through the verification process to get the blue check mark so that mm-hmm. would mean that uh if you paid eight dollars then you got to access the form or whatever it happened to be where you gave your name you gave your email you gave uh, a photo of the front and back of your ID and whatever other uh, identifying information they asked for to make sure that it was you. No, it's not that at all. It's you pay the the money and then that gives you the check mark. That's it. There's no verification involved. They are they are claiming that because you are paying money, that verif that is a verification in and of itself. And that's not enough to say that that's a person that is because yeah, as we've seen, um, know, how Nintendo. Is that? <laughs> that's, yeah, it's it's. 
It's so well, frustrating. I, I can ask. I can go in here and say, "Let's please verify me." You know what? But my 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 credit card has been stolen. So, Mr. Sergeant, can I borrow your credit card to pay for <laughs> this thing? And 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 that's that's a verifiable transaction. I I, I yeah, it blows my mind. You know, and Mr. And someone Mr. John can actually has a, some some examples of like Mr. Uh, Rudy Giuliani. Uh, mm-hmm verified and some outstanding tweets from the quote unquote verified <laughs> really really Giuliani. You know, I'm guessing, you know, hey, they they signed the 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 credit card statement and say, yep, this is me. Here's my eight bucks. Now let me get out here and just say all kinds of outlandish things. Yes. I could create eight different accounts and use my uh you know my payment to create those eight different accounts and I've got eight different check check boxes, check marks that I could then do a bunch of stupid stuff with. That is not enough. I think if you're going to, you know, cuz um Elno's whole thing, Elon's whole thing is that um <laughs> <no>. it was <laughs> is that it was an elitist uh it was it was elitist and only some people could have it, blah blah blah. If that is your argument, then fine. But let's make it so that it's the same process. It's still verifying that a person is who they say they are, not just pay money, you get it. That's not enough. That's not how this should be. So, yeah, it's frustrating. But um, I do want because I think so I used to also use the egg and or a uh, lack of a profile photo as a means of going. There was even in, in Twitter, if you were verified, there was a setting where you could uh, mute the yeah. tweets from someone who didn't have a profile photo. Yep. Um, and then I uh, was talking to a friend of mine who has low vision and they were talking about how uh, for people with low or no vision, meaning they are either blind or they, again, have low vision, many mm-hmm. of them do not use a profile photo because they it's not a part of how they sort of yep. uh, show themselves in the first place. And so I had yep. to really sh- shift my mindset there, and I turned that feature off because there was a whole community that I was potentially cutting off from that. So mm-hmm. we need better verification than the sort of um, assumptions that we are having to use to protect ourselves in some cases, because they end up uh, closing out certain people that you may want to be hearing from or talking to. Mm -hmm. It's all a mess. I I, I totally agree. I totally agree. I'm, I'm, I'm going to step off the soapbox now because I'm sweating a little bit, getting a little bit (laughs) thinking about this. I know we still have your story of the week coming up, so I'm not going to take up too much more of the time, sir. All right. Well, in that case, um, then I think we can take a quick break uh, so I can tell you about Wealthfront, uh, who are bringing you this episode of Tech News Weekly. Wealthfront's goal is to make building long-term wealth very easy by offering both high-yield savings and automated investing accounts that do just that, all within a beautifully designed interface. If your bank is keeping money that could be yours, or if you're earning less than Wealthfront's 3.30% APY, they just might be the place for you. Wealthfront might just be the place for you. Here's why. Federal interest rates have been going up this year, which means banks have been earning more on your savings. Where's all that extra money going? Well, according to the FDIC, the average U.S. bank has only raised their rates to 
0.21% this year. Wealthfront, on the other hand, is now offering their clients a rate that's about 15 times higher with the Wealthfront cash account. It's easy to sign up, plus you'll get unlimited transfers that are completely fee-free and up to, and this is great, $2 million in FDIC insurance through partner banks. There are no account fees, no minimum balance, and if you sign up at Wealthfront.com slash twit, you get a free $50 bonus when you make an initial deposit of $500. So don't let your bank keep the interest that you could be earning. Move your savings to a high-yield account like Wealthfront and earn 3.30% APY. Join nearly half a million people who already use Wealthfront to earn 15 times more than the average U.S. bank. Visit Wealthfront.com slash twit to get started and get your free $50 bonus with an initial deposit of $500. That's wealthfront.com slash twit. This has been a paid endorsement for Wealthfront. Thank you, Wealthfront, for sponsoring this week's episode of Tech News Weekly. All right, we're back from the break, and now it's time for a quick little story about Amazon. Um, The company like I think every big tech company, we were just talking about this earlier today as well, uh, is looking at ways to save money. Amazon is a somewhat unique company in the tech space because uh, for years, it, in its investors' eyes and mind and heart, um, can kind of do no wrong. The company regularly reports losses, but it never gets the same dings that you see other big tech companies get where when a big tech company announces, oh, um, we are not selling as many phones this year as we have done in years past, or, oh, we are selling um, only 1 million more phones than we did last year instead of 2 million phones more, then that tends to have the investors going, but Amazon regularly does not do well in terms of like bringing in new money. And yet it still continues to be something that investors like. And that is uh, still an ongoing um, experience. However, uh, you may remember or you may have forgotten, because I'll be honest with you, I had completely forgotten that Jeff Bezos was no longer the CEO of Amazon. He's still on the chair. And it's just in the back of my brain, I just see Jeff Bezos as the Amazon guy. And so I had completely forgotten about that. How dare you not give any love to Jassy in his new I know, I know. <laughs> Terrible of me, but Jassy's doing something different. He, well, not something entirely different, but he's doing more uh, than has been done before in terms of looking at ways to cut costs uh, at the company. So um, the Amazon does these reviews uh, according to their spokesperson every year, but this one is more in depth than has been in years past. And um, according to this uh, Wall Street Journal piece, Uh, They are looking at especially the devices unit of Amazon, which is not bringing in a whole lot of money and, of course, includes ALEXA, the virtual assistant. That has had an annual operating loss of $5 billion in recent years. And at the same time, and this is what's kind of wild about this, is the company, of course, um, 
expected a whole heck of a lot of growth because there was there were so many more people during the pandemic and especially during like the shutdown parts of things um the lots of people ordering from amazon so the company had to expand its uh workers and Mm -hmm. so between the end of 2019 and the end of 2021 again according to the wall street journal amazon hired more than 800,000 employees most of those of course going to the warehouses uh where people were then packing the goods so you've got You've, you've brought on a huge workforce in preparation for, uh, or in, in many cases in response to, the growth, the huge growth of uh, people buying from Amazon. But it doesn't sort of outpace, uh, A, the cost of those different employees, but also the cost of um, all of the other parts of the company. And there was something interesting that I saw uh, in the piece as well, where in the past... Um, workers were kind of instructed to get this stuff out the door as quickly as you possibly can. That's what matters. It's fast, 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 because we've got so much that we need to get out there that you just need to make it happen to now being instructed to try and fit as much onto each truck or van or whatever as possible. So Amazon has a huge logistics bill, and that is playing a role in some of the costs uh, that it is experiencing uh, that is resulting in it needing to uh, make money. Now, I did find it interesting that in... Oh, go ahead. Did you have something to say? <laughs> I'm like, Sorry. Amazon can't win for losing. Here, You just explained that this company that people love to hate has hired 800 thousand people that's 800,000 jobs jobs okay mm-hmm. 800,000 jobs and now they're struggling because you know there's still costs associated with it and they're not making enough money yada 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 i get that and then you went on to discuss how they're trying to figure out better ways to pack their trucks you mm-hmm. know to be more economically sound far as how these packages are get out getting out to the people ordering them that should be a win-win too when you start thinking about green, uh, the uh, green stuff that we. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. As, yeah green initiatives, emissions, yeah. and whatnot. But yet, it, people are going to just dump on them for that. You know, hey, my packages should have gotten here two days ago. Instead, <laughs> yeah, it's, they can't win for losing. They're trying to do some good things, but yes, some things Amazon does are are, are questionable as far as like the the working conditions. Yes, there are uh-huh. 800,000 jobs, but those working conditions were questionable. But at the same time, man, 800,000 jobs, jobs were created. Yep. yep. Sorry. That is, no, no, no. That That's you a really good point. Get me fired up, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's, that's something worth pointing out. And this is another thing that I have to say that I was surprised by is that um, in the places where the company is, uh, in the divisions where it's finding that it's unprofitable, Amazon is telling those employees to uh, look for openings in other parts of the company. So that's, I want to be clear. It's not, it's not the the best possible thing that they could do because they could help those people Mm -hmm. find jobs Mm -hmm. in other parts of the company, but it is pretty nice that they are saying, Hey, we're not firing you. You just need to find a place somewhere else. I think that that's a a pretty cool thing. Um, Yes. While they're, you know, looking at those teams kind of closing down or being suspended, uh, it's maybe that, you know, it's just we're tightening up everything uh, with the recession, uh, but that those jobs could open soon. Now, 
um, more numbers here. Amazon has lost $3 billion this year, 2022, after posting mm-hmm. net income of about $33 billion in 2021 and $21 billion in 2020. So let me be clear about that. They made $21 billion in 2020. They made $33 billion in 2021. This year, they lost $3 billion out of that you know, profit that they've built up over time. So uh, mm-hmm. this is this is the first time in a, in a couple of years that they are seeing a reduction. Um, and I, I, it's interesting because the uh, people that the Wall Street Journal talked to from Amazon were still being very bullish about ALEXA, even mm-hmm. though ALEXA is a part of that devices unit. And I remember talking to um, Heather Kelly, uh, from the Washington Post on this show about Amazon's recent um, devices event where they announced new Echoes and, and all that kind of stuff. And I I pointed out that we did not see a bunch of weird products from Amazon this year. Uh, in years past, they have <laughs> done like a strange... Um, microwave, uh, smart microwave and like clocks and a uh, soap dispenser and a uh, note printer, a sticky note printer and all this other stuff. And this year it was all pretty typical products, either updates to their existing lineup or um, it was it was new products that kind of iterated on what, what came before. And I feel like that is because Amazon's realizing that they can't just throw a bunch of money at a house robot that nobody wants um, <laughs> and expect that they're not going to lose money there. So all of that experimenting kind of has to go out the window a little bit. And I honestly think that that part of it, that focus is going to be better for the company in the long run because people do like to use those devices. They The Wall Street Journal also has... Um, information about how people use their Amazon devices and how they use them to control, using them to control their smartphone and using them for timer, excuse me, let me try that again, using them to control their smart home and using them to control timers are two of the most common things that people do with Mm -hmm. their uh, Echo devices. So Mm -hmm. they've got something going there. They just need to take their focus off of like twerking bears and um, (laughs) other strange products that People I don't, forgot don't really about want. the bear. <laughs> that was, I, I remember you getting that bear. That was pretty daggum funny. <laughs> it, it was hilarious, but like pointless. <laughs> you know, and, and I love the fact that you touched on uh, them focus being bullish on the A-L-E- A-L-E-X-A products. Um, that just shows focus. And unlike mm-hmm. a, another big tech company that we talk about each and every Wednesday, Google, Google has the, the worst ADD ever as a tech. Oh, there's the, the, the dancing bear. <laughs> but you Google can say it, Ant. Focus. It is not just the dancing bear. It is the twerking bear. Twerking it's okay to say bear. it. <laughs> oh, boy. Gluteus Maximus. Oh, boy. boy. <laughs> go, go ahead about Google, though, because you're so but right yeah, about this. But, yeah, the, Google is, is the worst when it comes to focus, and I, I fuss about this all the time. I think the Google leadership needs to do something about getting their teams hyper-focused on what they do best. I'm not worried about this from Amazon. Amazon, they know who they are. They are logistics. They are data and infrastructure. And they're going to be totally fine. 
and they can hyper-focus on those three aspects and just continue to build that profit right back up um, with in no time. This, this is going to be a, a, a nothing burger next year. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I think so. Um, in any case, of course, uh, we'll continue to see, I think, companies tightening things down, uh, battening the hatches, and uh, focusing on the most important thing. Well, some companies at least focusing on the most important yeah. things. The, the Googles among us, well, maybe, I don't know. Uh, but yes, I believe we have reached the end of this episode of Tech News Weekly, which publishes every Thursday at twit.tv slash TNW. That's where you can go to subscribe to the show in audio and video formats. And if you'd like to get all of our shows ad-free, well, you can do that by checking out Club Twit at twit.tv slash Club Twit. There, starting at 7 bucks a month or $84 per year, you can get the Twit Club Twit experience. Uh, you'll get all shows ad-free, as I mentioned, and you'll get your own like personal feeds for all of those with an ad-free version. You'll get access to the Twit Plus bonus feed that has extra content you won't find anywhere else, and access to the Club Twit Discord server. That is a special place where you can go and chat with all of your fellow Club Twit members and also those of us here at Twit. It is always active, always popping off, and uh, a lot of fun there at uh, in the Discord. And I should also mention that the, the fun doesn't stop there. Starting at seven bucks a month, again, twit.tv slash club twit, you also get access to the Untitled Linux Show, a show which, as you might imagine, is about Linux. Uh, the Hands on Windows program, which is a shorter format show where Paul Therott of Windows Weekly gives you all sorts of cool tips and tricks for making the most of your Windows experience. And then Hands on Mac, which is my show where I talk about not just the Mac, but all sorts of Apple devices giving you tips and tricks uh, this week. I am talking about how to keep your Mac from falling asleep um, using special one tool that's built into your Mac and then another tool that you can get for free. So that comes out just a little later today. Uh, check that out by joining Club Twit. And uh, the, the, num the membership numbers just keep growing. We're so thankful. Uh, tell your friends about Club Twit. Join it, twit.tv slash Club Twit. Uh, and if you want to follow me online. I'm at Micah Sargent on many a social media network, although on Mastodon, I guess it's technically at Micah Sargent at Mastodon.social, um, which is ridiculous. But uh, yeah, you can find me there and find me um, again Thursdays for Hands on Mac, uh, Saturdays for the Tech Guy radio show heard around the world where Leo Laporte and I take your questions and answer them live on air. And on Tuesdays for iOS Today, which I record with Rosemary Orchard, the incredible Rosemary Orchard, where we talk all things iOS, tvOS, watchOS, HomePod OS, etc. Aunt Pruitt, tell us about where people can follow you online and tell us about the shows they should check out. Sure, sure. You can follow me. I am Ant underscore Pruitt on the social platforms. That be Twitter, that be Instagram, that be Mastodon. Yeah, you can just type in Ant underscore Pruitt and it'll, it'll pull me up. It's not that hard, Mr. Sergeant. I promise you. Uh, <laughs> but also make sure you check out my show. I know I've been talking about this week in Google, but my show, my show is Hands-On Photography, which airs each and every Thursday. Just go to twit.tv slash H-O-P hands-on photography. And while I'm here, I want to give a shout out and a big thanks to our support staff, our editors, Mr. Nielsen and, and, and Mr. John Ashley, and also a shout out to the one and only Mr. Burke for all they do to help get this show rolling every week. 
Absolutely. We would not be able to get this show out without them. And of course, a shout out and a bunch of well wishes to Jason Howell, uh, who will likely be joining us again next week. Uh, until hang then, though, there. yes, hang in there. Exactly. Until then, it is time to say goodbye and have a great rest of your week. Hey, I'm Rod Pyle, Editor-in-Chief of Ad Astra Magazine, and each week I join with my co-host to bring you This Week in Space, the latest and greatest news from the final frontier. We talk to NASA chiefs, space scientists, engineers, educators, and artists, and sometimes we just shoot the breeze over what's hot and what's not in space, books, and TV. And we do it all for you, our fellow true believers. So whether you're an armchair adventurer or waiting for your turn to grab a slot in Elon's Mars rocket, join us on This Week in Space and be part of the greatest adventure of all time. 